Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Did anybody else see the fly flying around during the service? Okay, it wasn't just me. All right. Well, as we gather together this morning, we are quickly approaching the end of our current sermon series, where we've been talking about churchy stuff. We've already discussed the common Sunday morning practices of preaching, singing, and giving. We've also discussed the more ceremonial sacraments or ordinances of baptism and communion. So these last two weeks, we're going to focus more on the actual structure of our church, namely the way our church understands and practices leadership and membership. The question is always worth asking, why do we do these things the way that we do them? So as we talk about leadership, I'd like us to examine scripture in search of answers to four questions. Number one, why do we need leaders? Number two, who should our leaders be? Number three, what should our leaders do? And then number four, how should our congregation respond? And while no church practices leadership perfectly, and while no individual leader is perfect, I believe scripture gives us both helpful principles and explicit teaching to answer all of these questions well. So, let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, not 1 Peter, 1 Timothy. And feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've given to us. Father, thank you for the gift of life. Uh, Thank you for the gift of new life in the case of the Bailey family. I pray that you'd be with Lauren and Zach and Logan uh, as they make that new transition. And Father, we thank you for the gift of life that you've given us through mothers. Uh, Every single one of us in this room at one time and one place had a mother, uh, even if our mother is no longer with us. And so, Father, we are grateful for mothers and the life that we've been given through them. And Father, I pray that you'd be with us as we read from your word. I pray that we would have open hearts and open minds and open ears to what you have to say to us this morning. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's get right to it, asking question number one. Why do we need leaders in the church? You know, at one time, this question may not have been asked nearly as much as it is today. In the past, more people likely assumed that leaders were necessary in every sector of society. And most people tended to follow the leaders without a whole lot of pushback. Now, of course, in some ways, that was a good thing. In others' ways, it wasn't good at all. But our society has changed quickly and is still changing at a breakneck pace. And it seems as though these days we're more suspicious than ever of people who try and tell us what to do. We're more suspicious than ever of leadership. We're a democratic society, meaning that we're taught to believe that people should have as much say as possible over how they live their lives, regardless of what other people think. In addition, we live in an increasingly individualistic society, where there are few things more important than self-expression and authenticity not values like submission or obedience. And oh yeah, on top of that, we're sinners. We're descendants of Adam and Eve, the very first people to push back 
against the man. The very first people to resist or reject leadership. In other words, we are geared in so many ways to resist authority figures who try to make us fall in line. We often value our own individual rights and our own individual freedoms far more than submission or obedience to good leadership, even if following that leadership is in everyone's best interest. And then on top of that, all of us have seen far too many stories of revered, trusted, and powerful leaders abusing their authority, causing great damage and great pain to the people around them and the institutions they lead. We've seen it particularly as of late in the Me Too movement, where politicians, CEOs, and celebrities have arrogantly and wickedly used their position over subordinates as leverage to feed their most sinful appetites. And sadly, that same type of abuse is not foreign in the church. All these stories of corruption, all the stories of falls from grace, have made many of us assume that no leader in any context can or should ever be trusted. But the problem with that thinking is that it's like thinking that not only have a few bad apples ruined the whole cart, it's like thinking that a few bad apples have forever tainted the entire food group. But if you look at scripture, you'll see that healthy and strong leadership The kind of leadership that recognizes God as the one who put the leader in that position. The kind of leadership that remembers that one day they'll have to answer to God for how they've used their authority. And the kind of leader who actually lives as if God is real. That kind of leadership glorifies God. And it greatly benefits the people who follow it. Healthy and strong leadership in lots of different contexts can bring order to chaos, stability to shaky ground, and can help achieve meaningful goals. Now, there are examples of scripture of good, bad, and non-existent leadership. Take the book of Judges, for example, an example of poor or non-existent leadership. As the book wraps up, the situation in Israel degenerates. Some of the most horrible acts of wickedness in all of scripture are committed at the end of the book of Judges. And one of the recurring phrases in the end of Judges is this. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, there was no leadership. There was no vision. There was no accountability. But then we also see examples of good leadership in the pages of Scripture. Take the example of David. Early in his reign as king, Israel flourishes. He's serving the people justly and wisely. He accurately reflects the character of God. And even the nations around Israel benefit from David's good leadership. But then sadly, David becomes an example of bad leadership later in his life. He commits great sin, covers it up, pays dearly, and Israel suffers in both the short term and the long term. The point is that bad leadership causes great harm, but good leadership glorifies God and benefits people. We see it in scripture and we see it in our world today. So unless you're completely full of yourself or blind to your own weaknesses, 
you can probably recognize and probably admit that some good leadership could benefit you as well. We all need accountability. We all need encouragement. We all need teaching, especially when it comes to the eternal truths of Scripture and the massive claims that our faith makes. Several weeks ago, Mark Kinsey came to my house and helped me install a new sump pump in our basement. And then last weekend, Tom Coors helped me install a new water softener. And I asked for their help because I recognize my own weaknesses when it comes to home improvement. I recognize that I don't always know what I'm doing. And so I asked two men who are older, much older in fact, Older, wiser, and generally more competent than me for help. And in a weird way, as silly as it might sound, I was asking for their leadership. And guess what? The sump pump and the water softener both work. And had I tried to do those projects without their help, without their leadership, that might not be the case. So if we recognize our own limitations, our insufficiencies, and our lack of wisdom and experience in the relatively inconsequential areas of life, like sump pumps and water softeners, if we're willing to ask for others to lead us and help us there, then how much more so should we seek out good leadership in the things of eternal significance, the things of our faith? So again, I think we should all admit at some basic level that we need good leadership, especially within the church. But naturally, that leads to the next question that we want to answer. Who should our leaders be? So that's where we get into 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul says there, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, He desires a noble task. Overseer can also be translated elder. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In the New Testament, there were three primary positions of leadership within the church. Those were the apostles, the elders, and the deacons. 
Most Christians reserve the term apostle for someone who was an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. The apostle Paul is the most notable exception to that rule. And if you accept that definition, that means that all the apostles have died off, leaving us with elders and deacons in our day and age. So let's talk about elders, verses 1 through 7. If you put all of those characteristics together that Paul listed, you could probably sum it up by saying this. An elder must be godly, and an elder must be competent. He must have the desire to serve, he must be resistant to sin, and he must be able to teach God's people. That last one, being able to teach, is incredibly important. The way Paul describes it in Titus chapter 1 verse 9 is this. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. At a previous church where I served, we were preparing to go through a building program. And building programs in churches are a lot of work, and they require a lot of time, energy, and know-how especially in the area of planning and finances. And there was a man in our church who checked all of the leadership boxes in those areas. His business expertise could be incredibly helpful in that project. So as a result, he was asked to serve as an elder. And that man was, and still is, a wonderful believer. He's smart, he's godly, he's got a great family. But with all that in mind... Business expertise isn't a good enough reason to make someone an elder. That's also true about someone who's likable, or a big giver to the church, or has been around for a long time. Now, of course, those are all good qualities for an elder to have. Don't get me wrong. But 1 Timothy 3 should be the first place we go when we're appointing elders. And then there's that passage about deacons, verses 8 through 13. This is particularly interesting to think about because our church currently doesn't have deacons. The closest thing we have is the administration team, men and women who help with many of the -the behind-the-scenes aspects of keeping a church running in 2018. And the biggest difference between Paul's two lists, qualifications for elders and qualifications for deacons, is this. The list of qualifications for deacons doesn't include the ability to teach. It's worth mentioning that the ability to teach isn't just about speaking skills. It's not just about biblical knowledge. It's about credibility. You might have a leader in your church who knows a lot about the Bible and can maybe speak really well, can prepare a good lesson, But if that person can't be taken seriously by the congregation because of a lack of godliness or a lack of character, then their ability to teach has been compromised. But deacons appear to be tasked with the more practical needs of the church, while elders focus more on the spiritual needs of the church, though the standards for deacons are still quite high. Now, before we move on to question number three, there may be value in addressing one of the elephants in the room. Can women serve as elders at Prairie View? We have women on the administration team, so why not on the elder team? Well, here we go. 
In the passage that we just read, Paul assumes that elders in the local church will be men. You have to grant that. He simply takes that for granted. He uses the phrase more than once, a man of one wife, or it can be translated a one-woman man. Now, he might be saying that because earlier in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, Paul argued from the story of Adam and Eve that a woman is not to practice authority over a man in Timothy's church. Now, of course, it's debated. Is Paul saying that just to Timothy's church, just as a temporary ban in this particular situation? Or is he laying that down as a rule for the entire church for all time? That's the big debate. Well, the position that eldership is reserved for men is the most common position of Christian churches and denominations throughout history, though there have certainly been exceptions to that rule. And it's only fair to acknowledge the many debates amongst the godly and educated biblical teachers and scholars about how to interpret these incredibly difficult passages correctly. And at Prairie View, we think the more traditional interpretation Limiting eldership to men is a sound and reputable interpretation. After all, if we didn't think that, we wouldn't hold the position that we do. And it might even be easier not to hold the position that we do. But all that being said, I like to think that we hold our position with a healthy degree of humility. I don't think any student of scripture or any student of church history in their right mind could deny the unique contributions that women have made to the body of Christ. And many of those contributions simply could not be replicated by a man, even if he tried. And no one who served alongside so many of the women here at Prairie View would ever deny the essential role that women play in the life of this church. However, we're simply trying to interpret scripture the best way we know how. We really do believe that God knew what he was doing when he made men and women functionally, not qualitatively, but functionally different from each other. And we believe that we all work together the best and flourish the most, men and women alike, when we embrace those differences in a healthy way and live within them in a healthy way. So again, all in all, we're trying to interpret and submit to challenging passages in the best way that we know how. We as leaders at this church could be wrong about this. We all have blind spots. Thus, we don't condemn or disown brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree. That's simply where we fall right now. So, now that I've made it back off of that limb, let's talk about question number three. We see the value of good leadership. There's certainly value there. And we now have some guidelines about who our leaders should be. But that leads us to question number three. What should our leaders do? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Peter writes there. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, 
but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The best illustration that scripture has to offer for what an elder ought to be doing is that of the shepherd. Elders shepherd the people of God, offering spiritual teaching, care, guidance, protection, and nourishment. We elders are not CEOs. We aren't managers or counselors or entrepreneurs, though some of those skills may come in handy every now and then. Above all else, we as elders are shepherds. That's why godliness and competence are the primary traits expected of us. You don't need flashy talent or inspiring charisma or good looks to be a shepherd. Just look at Carl. But you do need godliness. Sorry, Carl. You do need godliness. And you do need some basic competence to serve as a shepherd. You may have all the talent in the world, all the charisma in the world, all the speaking skills in the world. But if you aren't godly and you don't have a desire to care for and shepherd these people, you cannot be an elder. And you should not be an elder. And then finally, question number four. How should the church respond to leadership? Well, I think I speak on behalf of the elders when I ask you to respond in a few ways. Number one, we ask you to trust us. We ask you to trust that we really do take our personal godliness seriously. We ask you to trust that we really do strive to be competent leaders and competent teachers. We ask you to trust that we really do desire your good and God's glory in the decisions that we make, even if you occasionally disagree with something we do or something we say or how we say it or how we do it. And if you don't trust us, you have got to talk to us. Because if for some reason we have violated your trust, we would want to know that, and we would want to know how, can, how we can rebuild that trust. And if hypothetically that didn't change anything, you talk to us, you try to reconcile with us, and we just can't get on the same page. Then here at Prairie View, as we mentioned earlier in the service, we vote for our elders. So if you think there's an elder who isn't trustworthy, isn't competent, and isn't godly, you don't have to vote for them. You can vote against them, and you can tell us why. And hypothetically, if that doesn't work, you tried talking to us, didn't get anywhere. You tried to vote against us, and that didn't do anything either. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Determine whether or not that elder is trustworthy, or maybe it's just something with me, if all these other people seem to trust him. But if you really truly determine that leadership at Prairie View isn't godly and isn't competent, I'm being dead serious when I say this, go to a different church. Go to a church where you can trust the elders. Go to a church where you do believe the elders are godly and competent, based on the standards of 1 Timothy 3. Because let's be real, it surely wouldn't be good for you, and it probably wouldn't be good for us either, to have you stick around in a church where you think the leaders are ungodly or incompetent. Now, of course, when we ask you to trust us, we are not asking for your naive, blind, 
unquestioning allegiance. We can and do make mistakes. And we want you to hold us accountable when we do. We ask you to follow us. And we ask you to trust us as long as we're following and trusting Christ. And no further than that. Another thing we ask you to do is hold us to the high standards that are presented in Scripture that we just talked about in 1 Timothy 3. James chapter 3 verse 1 says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. And as we just talked, every elder is a teacher in some capacity. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Most churches tend to go to one of two extremes. Either A, holding leaders to far too high of a standard, as if they're somehow completely free of sin, completely free of weakness, as if they're somehow perfect, and then when a leader sins, everyone is shocked. That's one bad extreme. But then the other bad extreme is holding leaders to too low of a standard, brushing sin under the rug and saying things like, hey, they're sinners just like us. That's true. We are sinners just like you. But we're also called to be held to a higher standard. We need a middle ground. We want you to hold us to scriptural standards. And then on top of that, we ask you to pray for us. I don't think any of the leaders here would claim to be martyrs in any sense of the word. We have it pretty good here. Most of the time, serving and leading at Prairie View is a joy and a privilege, and we love it. But I won't lie, there are also times when leading in a church isn't easy. Sometimes we mess up and things go wrong. And then other times, we do everything right as far as we can tell, and things still go wrong. So we ask you to pray that we would find the strength necessary, the patience, the grace, the godliness, that we would find those things not in ourselves, but we would find those things by trusting in the grace and power of God, and that we would lead this church well. Now before we wrap up, I want to spend a couple moments directing some words specifically for our leaders, and that includes me. That includes our spouses as well, because after all, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul did specifically address leaders' wives. Now, if you're not a leader here yourself, and you're not married to one, you should still listen in to what this part of the sermon is. So, fellow leaders, we have a great responsibility on our shoulders. And like we just mentioned, this is a great joy, and it's a great privilege But it is also a heavy burden, and we should recognize that. It's intimidating sometimes to think that we will answer to God for how we lead his people. We will answer to God for the example that we set for them. And we do not want to be like the selfish shepherds of Ezekiel 34, who exploited the sheep for their own gain. We do not want to be like the rebellious tenants of Matthew 21 who abused the power and abused the leadership their master gave them over his vineyard. Fellow leaders, we will answer to God for how we lead and how we serve this church. And the thought of that should give us all a healthy sense of fear and a healthy sense of trembling and a healthy sense of reverence and seriousness 
for the task that we have ahead of us. So fellow leaders, may every single one of us have a renewed focus and a renewed vigor to love and care for these people. May we have consciences captive to the word of God. May we serve and lead with boldness and selflessness and humility. May we grow in godliness and grow in confidence the way Paul would have us do. And may every single one of us in this room, every single one of us in this church, may we all resolve to follow our true leader, our perfect prophet, priest, and king, the head of the church, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. After all, he's the only perfect leader. He's the only leader who never has and never will lead us astray. He will never neglect our needs. And he will never use, abuse, or exploit us. He's already proven that by going to the cross and laying down his life for us. And of course, one day we look forward to his return. We look forward to the day when we will be in the very presence of our good shepherd and our true leader. And we will have the joy of following him forever. But until then, in the meantime... May we recognize and value and submit to good, godly leadership for our own good, for the good of the church, and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us. And thank you that you give us your word Not just to reveal who you are, not just to reveal your character, not just so that we don't have to guess about what you're like, but Father, thank you that you give us your word and you give us specific instructions. You give us guidance for the sake of our own good, for the sake of our own godliness, and for the benefit and for the effectiveness of our church. And so, Father, I pray that we would take your word, words like what we've read this morning, that we would chew on them and let them soak into our bones, soak into our hearts, soak into our minds, and shape us and make us into the holy people that you've already declared us to be by your grace. And again, thank you that even though leadership in the church is important, Even though the leaders here at Prairie View, what we do is important, we're also grateful for the fact that Christ is our true leader. That none of us, none of the leaders here, has to claim ultimate authority, has to get everything right, has to be perfect, because we already have a true, authoritative, and perfect leader, and it's none of us. It's Christ. And so, Father, help us all fix our eyes on him the one who lived and died and rose and ascended and will return. Father, again, we thank you for him. We thank you for this morning. I thank you for these people. Father, I pray that we would lead this church well for your glory and for our good. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.